and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Bent Tree. It is good uh, to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Well, <clears throat> it seems that fall show. <coughs> excuse me, fall showed up this morning. But um, I will go down fighting before I let my Hawaiian shirt time go to waste. So I, I see flannel breaking out. You're Coloradoans. What are you doing? You're tougher than this. No, it's all right. I'll be switching to flannel soon, I'm sure. And um, Well, welcome. My name is Paul Trimble. I'm one of the pastors here. And today as we get ready to worship, I just want to remember a time. If you're in your uh, 20s, maybe 25 or lower, uh, you know what this day is, but you probably don't remember it well. Uh, 21 years ago today, uh, terrorists flew um, planes into the Twin Towers uh, and then also into the Pentagon and one crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. Um, It's an odd thing to remember, isn't it? I I remember as a little kid, I'd hear the the old folks, they were old then, like 45, um, talking about uh, Pearl Harbor Day and how that had rung so true and it hurt them even when they remember it. So as you think back, um, if you're younger, you, you think about those older than you. That's what we remember. Maybe you've been taught that in school uh, when those terrorists attacked us and then the wars that followed. I, I look out and I see people that I know that have fought both in Afghanistan and in Iraq and, uh, and some that have given their lives and were wounded, uh, even in this room, uh, that were wounded. And so thank you uh, for serving our country, serving uh, there. As we remember this day, though, it brings back memories, doesn't it? it, it um, what, do we, what do we do? We, we remember, we say, God, you're in control. But one of the things that I want you to remember is not just that we were attacked, but today we are being attacked. Maybe not by terrorists, but a rot that has happened to our country where sin has invaded like never before. For you younger ones, you probably don't realize this, but sin has just been this wave that's come over this country. And and we don't fight with weapons made with hands. We fight with love, with mercy. We we draw close to Jesus, we say, this is who we serve. And unashamedly, we say, we're Christians and we love you. And we call out truth and we love people in the neighborhoods. Uh, so as we celebrate this, we'll pray in just a moment here and start our time. Remember what we're doing here is not unimportant. This is how we prepare to fight. Those songs of love that we just finished, those are love where we raise the name of Jesus high, but that's a battle cry to the enemy. They don't like that. The enemy doesn't like you being here learning about Jesus. I just ask you to draw close to the Lord so that when you leave this place, you can go take the fight to the enemy. And remember, the enemy is not the other people. It's a spiritual warfare. Those other people, we're there to rescue. Amen? Well, let's pray if you would. God, our Heavenly Father, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. God, we worship you for who you are. We worship your power. We worship your unchanging nature. Uh, God, we worship your greatness, your majesty, God. Father, we worship your goodness, God, your, your justice, your perfect justice, and yet your mercy in the midst of that justice. God, we worship your steadfast love for us that never changes. And God, we worship you We magnify your name. We make it great because you have done so much for us. You have demonstrated your love for us in that you gave us your son as a sacrifice for the sins of your people. God, you demonstrated your love for us by giving your your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And God, you have demonstrated your mercy in that while we were guilty and sinful and hated you, you purchased our freedom. God, we come before you today with our voices raised, our hands raised in song and 
as acts of worship, we turn our attention now to the words of Scripture. We, we worship you with our presence and our attention to what you have done and what you're saying to us. God, would you speak to us through your words? Help me to just disappear like Christian prayed. And may your truth come to us and be real. What we don't know, God, teach us. What we think we know but we have wrong, correct us with your words. Set our minds right. Complete us, God. Grow us up into mature maturity. Help us to grow to be the Christians you have designed us to be, God. God, thank you for each person here, those listening online as well. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, let's go ahead. I'm excited to be back with you. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We're going to continue in our series today, titled, So That You May Believe. That's the title of the series. Today, we pick it up in John 5. Uh, If you are able, would you please stand with me out of reverence and worship as I read our main passage for today. I want you to listen carefully. The Holy Spirit speak through these words to you, starting in verse 24 through verse 30. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. Because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out, those that have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those that have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's set the table before we dive into this next part, shall we? I need you to put on your thinking cap. This is not easy stuff, but it's also not hard if you think through it. Last time when we were together, we drilled down into to verse 25 here a lot. We're going to go right back there today. That's where we'll start. But let's remember where we are. Jesus begins by telling his hearers in John 5, 25, the first half. He says, truly I tell you, an hour is coming and, and is now here. Now I want you to think about this because Jesus is making a truth claim. If we use the definition That which corresponds to reality is truth. Or you could say a truth claim is something said that matches what is. So Jesus is making this truth claim because he says, truly I tell you, because he says, truly I tell you, a truth claim is either true or it's not true. It can't be both and one and the same. With that in mind, Jesus is declaring truth to his hearers by saying something was both coming out here in the future and at the same time to say it's already arrived. Now, how is that possibly true? Well, remember, something to be coming in the future out here at some future event and therefore not, it hasn't already arrived. That thing in the future hasn't arrived yet. And if it's already arrived, it has to be two different events that Jesus is describing, isn't it? Or at least it has to have two different events that share, listen, listen, one common denominator. And that is exactly what we find in the second half of verse 25. So what does Jesus say here? 
Well, read it again with me along with that second half, but let's put verse 24 in there because this is how he sets it up. He says this, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is making a truth claim that both at this present moment, he was speaking and at another moment in the future, dead people will hear his voice as the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's an amazing claim. Why? Because dead people don't hear things. They don't hear anything. And they don't come back to life. If you're unaware of that, you know, sorry to surprise you. At least not outside the power of God. And we're not talking about someone who just recently died. We're talking all dead people everywhere. People have been dead thousands of years. Now remember, the definition of the word dead at its most basic meaning is separation. Meaning with physical death, the body is separated from the soul. The body dies. Ah, that's my dead sound. And the spirit lives on, or the soul, you could say. Now Jesus is saying that there, there are spiritually dead people hearing his voice mediated by the Holy Spirit coming to spiritual life. But as far as we can tell, he wasn't raising any physically dead person back to life at that moment he was speaking or even soon thereafter. So you with me? The other problem we can see is that these people that he's speaking to, this large group, probably a thousand, they all seem to be alive, at least physically. So what's happening? What's Jesus doing here? Here's our key. Jesus is talking about two things at once with dead people. First, he's talking about spiritually dead people. People who were separated from God because of their sin. And we talked about that a ton last time we were together. Now remember, when we talk about spiritually dead people, these people are alive physically. They're walking, talking, hearing, processing stuff with their brain, but they are dead spiritually. They are cut off from God. They can never, neither hear God or really even speak to God. They're just, there's no communication. Why? Because they're dead spiritually. By the way, remember because of original sin and its result, total depravity Every person ever born into this world, other than Jesus, is born into this cesspool we call sin. Cut off from God, we are born into spiritual death. And since God is spirit, if you are dead spiritually, even though you're alive physically, you have no way to get to God or even to speak with him. Now, we drilled into this last time pretty hard. So if you've missed it, go back and listen. You can go to YouTube and listen. Type into Bent Tree Church or go to wherever you get podcasts. But the key I want us to hear and understand is that Jesus, as the Son of God, calls spiritually dead people to life by his word. It is then that the person who has been given life, or what we say is born again, responds to the call of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we use that story of Jesus calling his friend, uh, the dead man Lazarus, who had been dead in the grave for four days. Jesus goes and calls him back to life. From the tomb, you remember that? It's a way of thinking through how he calls someone to life spiritually in himself. It's a picture, that story of Lazarus, of a dead person being raised back to life, right? 
And then we use that as kind of a map or a guide of how God also calls us from when we were spiritually dead to spiritual life. So get this, back then as Jesus is speaking in John 5, he was calling spiritually dead people to life in himself at that moment. And he continues to call spiritually dead people to life in him through the church. The believers that go out, leave this place and share the gospel and how they live and speak. Jesus would call all of his people to spiritual life out of spiritual death by the power of the Holy Spirit until he has reached every single person he intends to reach. Now, we don't have to go, uh, have time to unpack this all right now, but we will soon. I just want you to know that this is a truth. It's that Jesus won't miss even a single person that God the Father has given him to bring to life. I didn't say he's going to save everybody, did I? We don't believe in universalism. He's going to save everyone he intends to. If you would, jump ahead to John 6 for just a moment. Look at that Bible in your lap or up here. Verse 39, Jesus is talking. He says, this is the will of him who sent me. That would be his father, right? That I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, we'll unpack that more and the doctrine behind it when we get to chapter 6 eventually in the new year, probably February. But just know that Jesus won't miss anyone he intends to save. That's good news. But the second big thing is remember back then to verse 25. This is huge. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of the rest of our time here. It wasn't just that Jesus was calling dead people back to life back then. It was that Jesus was saying, look, another event is going to happen out here in the future. By the way, he doesn't say when that event is. All we know from it, from study, is that that date doesn't change. It's on the calendar. In other words, there's, there's one Sunday left on that calendar because we're having this Sunday. By the way, um, stay with me on this because things are about to get, mm, what's the spiritual word? Um, freaky. And yet very cool. Jesus is talking to this giant crowd Say an hour is coming when the physically dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Jesus is also clearly talking about a second thing that would happen at a future date when the physically dead would hear this voice come to life. Now let's pick it up. Verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Just like the foundation, we spent the last seven weeks of our time, Jesus is saying, look, here's five claims I'm making about myself and my equality with God the Father. Here's my foundation. Jesus, here again, is claiming absolute equality with God the Father. He's saying there's not one iota of difference in my power. Equality. Now look at that line in verse 26. Just as the father has life in himself, so also he has granted the son to have life in himself. Although Jesus has the power to give life, he has also subordinated this equal power to whatever God the father wills. That word subordinated, big word, isn't it? We didn't use that word in the little Texas farm town where I grew up. So let's make sure we understand what subordinated means. To subordinate something is, to subordinate oneself is to willingly lower yourself in rank or position. To subordinate oneself is to willingly lower yourself in rank or position. By the way, I see a trend here, and I like it. It's okay, because I go too fast. 
is. Some people just pull out their phone and take a picture. That's not a bad idea. It's like, We talked about this before, haven't we? Jesus does not have less power than the other two persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, right? What he has done is to lower himself willingly to do the will of God the Father. He lowers himself. He subordinates. But think about this. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says what? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, obviously, he has been given this authority by the Father. Doesn't this imply that his power has been delegated from God the Father with his mission? Earlier in the chapter, we saw that Jesus has the authority to grant life to whomever he chooses, both spiritual life and physical life. So let me ask a question. How do we know that Jesus has the right from God the Father. Uh, Because Jesus says this in verse 27. He says, he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now look, it just changed the the name from Son of God to Son of Man. Underline, Underline that. God grants to Jesus the right to sit as the ultimate judge over all people who have ever lived. Why? Because the actual subordination that Jesus did was to leave his heavenly throne as truly God in his nature and then to add to himself the nature of man. He took on flesh. It's why we call Jesus the God-man. Truly God, yet truly man. Because Jesus had become a man. He was, listen up, listen up. He was the only just judge that could judge mankind. In a very real sense, Jesus earned the right to judge mankind. Why? Because he is a mankind. Not just by becoming a man, though but by living a perfect sinless life and then dying the death that you and I deserved, all mankind. All all deserve death except Jesus. Therefore, Jesus' death can function as an atonement for our sin. Someone say amen. That's good theology right there. That's good solid doctrine. Take all of that then, that the Father then certifies Jesus through the resurrection of Jesus from death. His resurrection proves he is the Son of God and has the Father's stamp of approval. All of this qualified Jesus to be this righteous judge of all mankind. Now, Jesus had said clearly back in verse 22 that the Father, he says, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, remember, we spent two weeks on those two kinds of judgment. You remember that? Jesus is going to judge the earth with two kinds of judgment. First, for Christians, he will judge the works they did in this life given um, and give them a reward based on what lasted through that fire. Do you remember talking about gold, silver, precious stones as a way of saying those works we did? He doesn't judge whether or not they are saved because they are already saved. They're already born again. They have already been judged not guilty, not only innocent, but get this, the actual goodness and righteousness of Jesus has then been put into their account. So when God looks at them, he sees them as his own child. That's good news. In fact, adopted children of God have the same victory that Jesus has. But then the separate judgment that we also studied was one of those who rejected the offer of salvation. We call those a reprobate that reject it and die in their sin. Not to whether they are guilty, we learned of that judgment. They were all born guilty. We're all born guilty. No, this judgment called the great white throne judgment because of what Jesus is described as sitting on was to determine sentencing for those who rejected Jesus as Savior and Lord. You with me? 
And it's at that second judgment, every sin an unbeliever has ever committed is judged. And then the appropriate level of sentence or judgment is then doled out to them. Literally, the more sin and the worse sin a person is guilty of, the more punishment in hell Jesus would sentence that person to. That's what this is saying. Back to Jesus' own words. Look at verse 27 again. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is, look, the son of man. Ask yourself a question when you study the Bible, who's talking? So who granted Jesus this right to pass judgment? God the Father. So Jesus has the right to judge given to him by God the Father. Now remember this big crowd of people listening to Jesus, probably in the thousands at this point, commoners, Jesus' own disciples, and then these religious leaders who were trying to stir up the crowd in such a way that they would pick up stones and stone Jesus for blasphemy, claiming to be God. Jesus knows exactly what he's saying. He doesn't mince words here. He knows that this is crazy, huge, scary, and yet awesome news all at once. He's dumping on them. Because look at this. Look at this. If this is true, what Jesus has said in the first part of this chapter, think about this. If this is true, what Jesus claims, then God is standing in the flesh speaking to them. Right there. As someone pointed out after the first service, Something very interesting is that wasn't uncommon for kings, pharaohs, kings to say, I am God in the flesh. We have a few people that say that now, right? But they would say, because I am God in the flesh, you will serve me. You will give me this. You will do that. You will die for me. And Jesus says, no, I will die for you. I will love you. So he says this in John 5, verse 28. He says, do not be amazed at this because the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. Now look at that phrase that starts off verse 28. When Jesus says, don't be amazed. Whew. I don't think he said that, don't be amazed at what he had said previous to this point. I think what he is saying is don't be amazed when all the dead who are in their graves will come out. He's saying that stuff I just said, that's small potatoes compared to what I'm about to do in the future. It's interesting to me that he says don't be amazed because that would be amazing. Am I seeing the same thing you guys are? This is the second thing that Jesus had said back in verse 25 that that is coming in the future at some point. Physically dead people in their graves coming back to life physically again. Now remember, when we see the word all, A-L-L, we always want to ask ourselves, does this mean all people without exception? Like, are there qualifiers to this word all? And here we say, what is the qualifier? What are those? All who are in their what? Graves will hear his voice. And remember, Jesus is talking about a physically, uh, physically raising dead people to life. But what Jesus is saying is don't be surprised because I'm telling you right now that all dead people will come to life that have lived ever since the beginning of creation. Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, your great-grandmother. But not just people we would call God's people, but he's saying all people, even even evil people. Pharaoh, Judas, Pilate, Hitler, Ted Bundy. Remember, this is a future event. He said all dead people will come to life. And a future event that precedes two kinds of judgment that will come after. All right, this event comes before that. We call this, here it is, the great resurrection. Is the resurrection from the dead of all those who have ever lived. 
and get my picture. The great resurrection is the resurrection from the dead of all those who have ever lived. This future event, this great resurrection, we call it great because of its size, its scope. And for believers, it's going to be amazing. But for unbelievers, or we, what we call the reprobate, it will be horrible. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Folks, we could literally spend weeks on this verse, and you know I'm not lying. But let's boil it down to the basic facts here. Who are the people in their graves right now? Dead people. Physically dead, and or spiritually dead too. Physically dead people for sure. There are people who are both physically and spiritually dead though. The place we call the dead needs some explaining. We don't have a lot of time to explore this much, but you need to know at least a little bit. So let's talk about it. Let's start with believers in Christ Jesus. Those who are Christians that die. We know that they will be raised from the dead their body physically raised from the dead, but what happens when they die? The moment they, they croak. Like, what are, where are they right now? Where is their spirit, their soul? The Apostle Paul, when he said he's talking to, about a believer's death, he says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. He says, in fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body, that means dead, and at home with the Lord. And the, oh, I want to preach on this part. We call that place heaven and we'd be right because that's where God is. Heaven is where God is. And notice that Paul describes what, where and what we are now in this body as being away. This is not our home. This body is not our, our home body. And once a Christian dies, they are at home with the Lord. You with me? That phrase at home with the Lord means first that this body we now have is not our home. But it also means, look, in heaven right now, Christians who have died have been given a new body and are conscious, are conscious and in the presence of Christ Jesus. In heaven, right now, Christians who have died have been given a new body, are conscious, conscious, and in the presence of Christ Jesus. Now, like I said, we could spend weeks here and still not exhaust this topic. But what we need to know is that the place, this heaven where they are, believers that have died, are in is only a temporary place. I just moved your cheese, didn't I? God has only revealed a little bit about this place, even what our bodies are like for believers who have died. We only know, really, it's wonderful. We can use the term intermediate state. For those bodies, Christians that have died and gone on before have. We call it the intermediate state. That would be the theological word. But listen, not all theologians and pastors agree on this. But this is something that I've studied more than 25 years. Actually, probably close to 35 years. I feel confident in this. If you have been here at Bentry for a while, you've heard me preach on this more than once. Those Christians that are in heaven right now are not in a kind of sleep. Churches that teach soul sleep, that's a false doctrine. They are not disembodied floating spirits on the ethereal plane. Scripture's clear, that's false. Run from churches that say that. Scripture's clear, those who have died who are saved, or sometimes we say those who have died in Christ Jesus, have a body and are conscious. But get this. The body they are given in this intermediate state is not their forever home that they'll have. They will not get that body 
until the future event that Jesus is talking about here in verse 27, when they will have their old dead bodies rise and be given their eternal body. Listen how the Apostle Paul describes this time when Christian, a Christian dies, but before the very end and when we will be given our eternal body. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 3. He says, For we know that if our earthly tent we live is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in heavens not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent. Desiring to butt up our heavenly dwelling, since when we are cl- since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Check out verse two. Can you identify with this? Is this body you have right now groaning? I groaned when I got up to preach. I was like, oh, here I go again. I can't get up without groaning. How about you? People often get this confused though, but really it's not that confusing. Hold on to this. I know some of you, uh, I know I have you writing a lot down, but hang with me. Write this down. Believers now in heaven living in their intermediate state have no, uh, have not received their final reward. Believers in heaven living in their intermediate state have not received their final reward of heaven. By the way, don't get this confused with the Roman Catholic false doctrine of a probationary period called purgatory. Purgatory is a great ski place in southern Colorado. It's a false, it's a false doctrine. You won't find it anywhere in the Bible because it was made up place, quite frankly, to get money. In fact, if you've been ever awed at St. Peter's Basilica, don't be. It was built with funds from this. This false doctrine that you won't find in Scripture. But what Jesus is talking about here is so cool in that this final resurrection he's talking about will get an eternal body and will get a new heaven and a new earth that we read about in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22. So I want us to spend... um, time here, but we just don't have time to do it. All right. But just get this idea. Believers in their final resurrection with their body here on earth will meet them when they raised to life will receive a new body that will be able, listen, 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 a new body that will be able to handle the level of blessing that he is going to pour out on us in heaven. Your body can't handle all the good stuff. Some of your bodies can't handle much right now. You're going to get a body that can handle the blessings. Praise God. Pleasures and blessings untold. With, I love this. Without the weight of sin. So if believers, when they die, are in heaven, where are those that have died who are not in Christ Jesus? And what does their resurrection look like? Well, think about the Christians that have died that have will be taken to heaven. Unbelievers that have died go to a place as well. Write this down. Unbelievers that die apart from the saving work of Jesus go to the place of the dead called Sheol in Hebrew. Unbelievers that die apart from the saving work of Jesus go to the place of the dead called Sheol. That's the Hebrew word. Again, we don't have time to describe this in detail a ton right now, but at least understand it's not yet hell. But it is hell-like for sure. In Luke 16, Jesus tells his followers a story of a rich man that dies at the same time as a poor man, Lazarus. You ever heard this story? Jesus tells us that Lazarus goes to a place that is real and full of blessings and comfort and rest, while the rich man, on the other hand, goes to a hell-like sheol that is full of regret and suffering, physical and spiritual suffering. So much suffering, in fact, that the rich man cries out for just a drop of water. Would you have, have Lazarus just dip his finger in water and just give me a drop? That's all I'm asking for. Can you imagine? That's just, that's torment. Now, although some think of this story as a parable to illustrate a point Jesus is making, I prefer, on the other hand, to believe that it is a true story 
that Jesus is relating in Luke 16. I think that because Jesus, A, never calls it a parable, and he does every other time. And B, he uses the term Lazarus. No other parable that Jesus conveys has an individual's personal name in it. The point I want us to get here is the dead who are not in Christ are also very, there's a very real physical place with great, uh, with real bodies, but experiencing horrible existence. Plus, why would he use the name Lazarus if it weren't a real story? Because he just raised Lazarus from the dead. You, you see what I'm saying? It's not the same Lazarus. He's going, no, there's a story I want to tell you about a Lazarus and a rich man. But what is very interesting to me right now is they are still not yet paying for their sin in hell. Those that have rejected Jesus. This is why Jesus' statement in verse 27 through 30 becomes so very powerful in John 5. Jesus is saying, look, not just that those in Christ Jesus will be resurrected and stand before him with a new body. Jesus is also saying that those that have rejected him will also be resurrected with a new physical body and stand before him. You with me? Now, can, now this confuses some people when they hear this. They think, why on earth would Jesus give those that have rejected him a new body when they raised their body from the grave? Why would he do that? Here's the answer. The reprobate will be resurrected with a new body that can withstand the rigors of eternal punishment in hell. The reprobate, those who have rejected Jesus as Savior and Lord, will be resurrected with a new body that can withstand the rigors of eternal punishment in hell. Their body will just heal and get better, heal and get better. Talk about sobering. Talk about a big gulp. Let's look back at verse 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in there in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in the second half of verse 29. Now, This does some funny things to me when I think about this doctrine. An eternal condemnation, eternal suffering with a body that won't die. And I start asking questions like, how can God punish someone eternally for someone they committed in a finite life? Do you do that? Like, isn't isn't there an end date to their punishment? Like, don't they get out of hell at some point? That thought process right there has brought about a false doctrine in the church from Christians over the centuries. And although I really don't want to just harp on what's wrong, this false doctrine, you can see why it comes about. And if we examine why it's wrong, we can understand what Jesus is talking about even more here. So stay with me. Here's the false doctrine alert. False doctrine alert. Annihilationism is the belief that unbelievers will not experience an eternity of suffering in hell, but will instead be extinguished after death. Annihilationism is the belief that unbelievers will not experience an eternity of suffering in hell, but will be extinguished after death. Now, there's variations. Some believe that they die right away. They're just gone. They never existed. Some believe that they spent a certain amount of time. Both of those doctrines are wrong. Now this sounds attractive at first, doesn't it? Because it's, it's awful to think about the idea of someone spending an eternity in hell with a body that can handle it. Where this false doctrine comes from is when people have this thought process. Go with me here. The false idea revolves around the thought that although scripture doesn't support this kind of doctrine in a very specific passage, they would say overall you can see that a loving God would never punish someone forever. So even though scripture doesn't specifically say that, we can assume that God, it's what God meant to say. Boy, that's dangerous ground to stand on. 
to tell the world, hey, this is what God meant for you to know about him. But he never said it. To say, well, God didn't say it, but here's what God meant. Now, why is the doctrine false? Four big reasons. Like we just said, there is absolutely no scripture in the Bible to support it. And along with that same line of reasoning, there's mountains of scripture that show that it's rejected. Number two, sin and its consequences are much bigger than we understand. All sin that we commit is against God. Yes, we commit sin against each other, don't we? But really and truly in the end, all sin is against a holy God. Number three, this false doctrine misunderstands the perfect justice of God. Number four, this false doctrine misunderstands the nature of hell and punishment. Let's think through some of these just a bit. This will help us. A few weeks ago, we studied that last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, as it talks about that final judgment. You remember that? And those that did not believe the reprobate, uh, those that didn't believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, are then judged by Jesus himself, cast into the lake of fire along with sin, death, Satan, and his demons. Annihilationists misunderstand the lake of fire. They think, well, if you throw a human body into a cauldron of fire like the volcano, the person's body will be burned up. And they said, see, God's saying that you'll, you'll go away. And they would say that they are forever paying for their sin because they paid for it. And then the memory of them paying for it goes on, even though they cease to exist. That's false. Here's the problem. The lake of fire, or what we sometimes call hell, is both a physical and a spiritual place. Listen, it's not just a body that is being cast into the lake of fire that can handle it. Because every person is made up of body, soul, and spirit, right? A spirit isn't consumed by a physical fire, but there is a spiritual fire as well. And these new resurrected bodies given to the reprobate are not consumed either. Both are eternal, spirit and physical. What Jesus is talking about in verse 29 of John 5 is that those that have rejected Jesus are given a body that won't break down under the physical punishment of hell ever. But what annihilationists also misunderstand is the doctrine of eternity outlined in Scripture. We need to think through this. I need to give you a little bit of a Greek lesson. Hang with me. The word in Greek that we translate the word eternal is aeonian. Aeonian. Specifically, this word refers to an age or an eon, a specific time period. So on the surface, looking at this word with that, with that definition, it appears annihilationists may have a case, doesn't it? But here's the problem with their argument. The New Testament uses that word aeonian to also refer to an unending length of time. When Jesus is preaching in Matthew 25, verse 46, he's preaching about the very end. He said, and they, talking about the reprobate, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now that word eternal is the Greek word aeonian. Right here. Does it mean without end? I think it does. Do you? By the way, I don't think so. But if you say then that you have, you have a new problem, you say it is for a specific length of time. Because if you say, well, no, it only means an age, then the wicked will only be punished for an age. Well, then let me ask you then. Does this also, this second word, aeonian, also mean that people in heaven will only be there for a specific amount of time? Because now you got a new problem, don't you? It's the same word. Bear with me. If you're thinking, Paul, why on earth fuss with all of this false doctrine? Here's why. Because I think it has seeped in to a lot of your thinking of people listening in this room. And when it does, people think, well, I don't really need to share the gospel because even if people go to hell, in the end, they won't be there forever. And if they cease to exist, 
What do we do when that thought process goes through our mind is then is to surmise, well, then hell is just simply not that big a deal. And therefore, Jesus' blood is not either. I got to tell you, it's a lie of the enemy. Don't go there. Run from that false teaching. Hell is one of the main reasons why God loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to pay for the sins of his people. If we are simply extinguished after death, well then, there's no dread of hell, is there? But buddy, if there's an eternal hell and punishment like Jesus is talking about here in John 5, well then that's a game changer, isn't it? There's a reason to repent. There's an urgency about us sharing the gospel. God the Father has set up the world where each of us lives. There are no accidents, the conversations, where you live, you work, you play, where you go to school. The urgency comes not that God is somehow in control, not in control, but that we have a job to do in sharing the gospel and our time is limited to get the job done. I'm convinced that most believers waste opportunities, including me, that God has given us to share the gospel news with someone because they're on their way to hell. Let's address one more point that the uh, annihilationists bring up, and it's this. How could God hold a person accountable for all eternity for something they did in this short finite life. Have you ever asked that? I've asked that. The simple answer is actually quite simple. Here it is. Our sin bears an eternal consequence because it is committed, excuse me, against an eternal God. Our sin bears an eternal consequence because it is committed against an eternal God. Therefore, only an eternal God-man Jesus, who has taken on the flesh of mankind and remains sinless, is worthy to pay the debt that we owe. You with me? Think about King David when he sinned with the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, one of his best friend's wives, and then had her husband killed in battle, which was murder. He felt the weight of a sin in his prayer that he put to a song of repentance. He said this in Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4. He says, for I am conscious of my rebellion. He says, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. David understood that really any sin, all sin, even sin against other people, ultimately is a sin against God himself. So as a result, all sin against God is worthy of eternal punishment. You see it. It's not a matter of time we serve in hell if we're a reprobate or how long we live this life. No amount of time served in hell would ever be able to atone for the sin against a holy God. The real problem of our sin is that we sin against the very character of a holy God. Here's the deal. Christians often have a low view of the evil of our sin. We go, it's not that bad. We have a low view of God's holiness. We have too high a view of our perceived goodness and too low a view of how how great the debt we owe, too low a view of the price that Jesus paid on the cross for our debt. By the way, we could go on and on here, but three quick things I want us to see about hell and eternal punishment. First, in Scripture we find those judged guilty and sentenced to hell are never ever described as wanting to go to heaven or wanting mercy from God. The rich man Jesus described in Sheol never asks to get out. He never repents of his sin. Second, and related, those in hell continue to sin in hell. 
They hate God. They know he's the king. They know he's the victor. They know he is the son of God. They know Jesus is this great high king, but they still hate him. Let's return back to our last verse for today. Jesus says this in John 5, 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Here we see again that subordination that we talked about earlier today. Jesus has just claimed sufficiency and ability and power is equal to God the Father. And yet he says this, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear the Father tell me. Why does he do that? Well, it says, because I do not seek my own will, but the one who sent me. Folks, what a powerful place for us to end today. If Jesus, perfect in every way, subordinates himself to the will of God the Father, how much more should we do the same? We who are unable to, to kill our own fleshly desires and sin and submit our will to God just like Jesus, to, to let the Holy Spirit have his way in our lives, to make us into Christ followers that go out into the world and make disciples. That's what the world needs, disciples bringing love to a hurting world, disciples that bring justice to the world where there is injustice, disciples that clothe the naked, disciples that give food to the hungry, disciples that take care of the widows and orphans. When we subordinate our will to that of God's will, it's not just that we avoid hell, but what we get, we get Jesus, the beloved of the Father, and in him we are the beloved of the Father. And when we get Jesus, we become like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the love that you have shown us is just so incredible and yet at the same time my sin stands before me and I think about it, how dark my sin is, how awful my sin is. How flippantly I've thought of my sin in the past but that you loved me enough to send your son even though I hated you, that you loved me first, that you called me to life. God, I lift up the Christians in this room, the brothers and sisters in the faith, that you would give us an urgency to share the gospel because of the real threat of hell that people face. God, help us to be the followers you want us to be. Help us to disciple each other and to grow into everything you've called us to be. Christians, as you just continue to pray, if you would just pray for me and pray with me and pray for those who I'm going to speak to. If you're not a Christian, if you just open your eyes and look up here at me, lock eyes with me for just a moment. Listen, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is actually very simple. But let me tell you what it's not. It's not that Christians were somehow smarter than you or better than you or goody two-shoes and and God notice. Listen, we were vile sinners on our way to hell. And Jesus called us to life we were born again and we realized who Jesus was and we gave our life to him we believed in him and said you have control now if you're not a Christian the difference is that you haven't believed but let me ask you is Jesus waking you up right now is he calling you to life You see, all your sins, sins in the past, present, even your future sins, you haven't even thought of yet. Jesus says, I love you enough to take all your sins to the cross and kill them there, to take your place. Believe, believe, believe. Is the Spirit of God waking you from spiritual death, giving you life right now in Christ Jesus? If he is, believe. And then give him the, the keys to your life. Say, you're in control. Now I get it, you're going to 
you're already a baby Christian if you believe right now. You're just a baby. You don't know anything. But this place, these group, this group of people will help you walk along to get baptized, to learn what following Christ is like. We'll walk you through the Bible. We'll teach you everything you need to teach. Plus, you've got the Holy Spirit of God living within you now. So just pray this. God, you can have all my tomorrows. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And I follow him today. Thank you for saving me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.